Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain. This is part two. Of two. Uh, part two of two, yes, absolutely, of our look at the subject of knowing your enemy. And we ended part one looking at the example of Ribbentrop and whether we should really be sending diplomats who don't really know anything there, don't know their hosts particularly well and actually make matters worse. And I was going to continue on that theme, really, to look at the way in which a number of diplomats, in this case, uh, Russian and British diplomats going to Iran, getting it completely wrong and leading to some really quite horrendous developments. So one very notorious incident, of course, is the first time a, a Russian embassy is established in Tehran at the end of the uh, Second Russo-Persian War. This is in 1828. And the Russian Tsar sends uh, a rather haughty, uh, very well-known literary figure, Griboyedov, to uh, Tehran as ambassador. And he's very, very arrogant in his treatment of his hosts and mm. uh, basically imposes, you know, the sort of Treaty of Turkmenchai, which was the treaty at the end of the Second Russo-Persian War, was pretty tough on Iran. And the Russians were quite determined that they were going to exact every last penny of the reparations and all the other sort of details of the treaty. And the result was that actually the Russian embassy got ransacked. I mean, the uh, Tehran mob really launched into it and everyone but one person ended up dead. So this was not a good start to diplomatic relations and might be a, a salutary lesson on how not to run your diplomatic relations. The Iranians were obviously horrified by this. I mean, certainly they sent a very groveling embassy, interestingly enough, to St. Petersburg to sort of uh, apologize profusely for what they'd done. And interestingly enough, the Tsar at the time was very forgiving. I mean, he, he sort of said, well, you know, Grabayatov was perhaps, you know, not the best person to send. And they managed to patch things up, which is also a, a, an idea of you know, what you can get away with when diplomacy is really run by the autocrat and you don't have the modern media focusing on everything. Because if you can imagine if that had happened in the 20th century, it would have led to a breakdown in relations for a very, very long time for obvious reasons. Mm. And the second one, which I find quite interesting, is the British ambassador that was sent to Iran in the 1850s, a gentleman by the name of Charles Murray, who made such a mess of the relationship with Iran at the time that basically precipitated the one and only Anglo-Persian War in 1856-1857. And Charles Murray was so high-handed and arrogant in his dealing with the Iranians that basically it marked, as I said, the first and last time you've had a, a hot war, uh, but also a complete breakdown in relations. And interestingly, when the, the British did a sort of a post-mortem on all this, one of the interesting things they came out with was they said that the mistake they'd made was Charles Murray had been dispatched from London and not from India. And they said, in future, if we have staff in Tehran, there has to be a cohort of individuals who have served in the Indian civil service and have a familiarity with the region. And I thought that was an interesting comment because the Russians, of course, coming, you know, expanding southwards had a very sort of haughty attitude, their civilizing mission, you know, they treated both the Ottomans and the Persians, in the sense, with a certain amount of condescension. Really returning, I have to say, the, the compliment that the Ottomans and the Persians had done a couple of centuries earlier. But they had no such post-mortem in a way, as far as I can see. But the British sort of basically concluded, they had a number of sort of parliamentary committee reviews, and they basically concluded, interestingly enough, that our problem was that Murray had no experience of the region. He had no understanding of, quote, the Persian at world, because he hadn't been in India. And therefore, he completely misread the signals and the diplomatic nuances, if you will, and as such made matters worse. And I think that's 
also an interesting aspect. You know, when you send diplomats, so we, in one sense, we're saying, as we said in the last episode, really, that yeah, I'm just trying because because there is you've said two different things, Ali. I mean, again, there's a distinction here, I suppose, which you're sort of picking. We're not saying that you want to send someone who is pretending to be something they're not, shall we say, or you know, I'm a. British Marxist. So, to trying to be really yeah, chummy. Yeah, sort of the ribbon trop stuff. But you do need to send someone who at least has some understanding of the environment in which they're operating. And, and that's the distinction. And one sort of assumes, I forgot the name of the ambassador that you were mentioning who basically corralled Churchill into sort of getting to know Stalin. Oh, Kerr. Yeah. But he clearly must have had a better idea of the environment in which he was working in because he, he kept persisting, didn't he? He said, you know, let's have another go. At the end of the day, we're actually talking about emotional intelligence, I yes. think. Because Clark Kerr's point was, you have to build a personal relationship. And then the question about how you build that personal relationship in order to be instrumental, in order to influence or persuade the other to act in your interest, not in their interests. I mean, that's that's the heart of diplomacy, I think. But if you then looking at it as a, as a state level, when you have these meetings, they are about one of them trying to influence the other to behave in a way that meets our requirements. And I, I have an Australian friend who told me, for example, this is just a small example, but it's a it's a really interesting example of that trying to influence was the Australian Prime Minister Robert Menzies, who went to London in 1941, mm. left Australia in the middle of the war and went to London to persuade Churchill to defend Singapore. And rather than stay at home and run Australia, he spent several months in London. And during that time, he lost control of the situation at home in Australia. And he ended up without being able to persuade Churchill to do anything more on Singapore at all. So the whole thing was essentially a, a monumental waste of time. But it might have been different had he been able to persuade Churchill to do something differently. And so that question of, you know, what's the point of talking to each other? What are you trying to get out of your engagement? And that made me think, Ali, you know, there's an infinite number of examples in history and in geography. But I thought we might dwell a little bit on Saddam Hussein. So I'd, unless you're going to tell me I'm wrong, mm. I don't think Tony Blair ever met Saddam Hussein, did he? No, I don't think don't. he did. No, I, I, I couldn't find any reference to that. But he met Gaddafi. Other... He met Gaddafi, didn't he? Yes. Very noteworthily, he met Gaddafi in 2004 in that tent in the desert. But he didn't meet Saddam Hussein, but a whole load of other people did. And particularly during the first Gulf War in 1990, when Saddam Hussein took a large number of hostages, not just, you know, not just British, but sizable numbers of American, French, German and Japanese hostages and held them. And there were a series of people from the West who went over to Iraq to talk to Saddam, who, to try and persuade him to release the hostages. And there's a sort of hierarchy of how many they each got released. So in at the bottom is, well, sorry, quite a lot didn't get any released, but Cat Stevens went and he got four hostages released. I had no idea, actually, that he'd gone. Tony Benn went, and he got 15 hostages released. And Ted Heath went, and he secured... He got lots of hostages. I mean, I think 33 is here, but I think he, he basically... He was the one who really unlocked the hostage situation. And in 1993, when he was asked to explain how he'd managed to do this, 
He said, Saddam trusts me and he knows I tell the truth. And at the time when all this was happening, when Heath was going over to Iraq, of course, the prime minister in the UK at the time was Margaret Thatcher and the foreign secretary was Douglas Hurd. And Margaret Thatcher was not okay, really, with her predecessor, Edward Heath, trotting backwards and forwards to see Saddam Hussein to get hostages released. And so you had, for example, this man called David Howell, who was chairman of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, told reporters that every hint that the West is somehow to do deals or to move away from unconditional and immediate withdrawal from Kuwait is sucker to Baghdad. It gives Saddam Hussein more chance to divert attention from Kuwait to Israel and will lead to more bloodshed. This guarantees the situation will be worse, more prolonged and more damaging in human lives. So you have this real playing out of a difference of approach. And of course, because Heath was a former British prime minister, he had that respect. You know, Saddam took him seriously, clearly. And it really did emphasise that row between Heath and Thatcher. So you could say that, oh yeah, no, <laughs> so, really, so Margaret Thatcher and Saddam Hussein traded insults about it and she described him as a loser and he fired back that she was an old hag. So um, that was how the relations were going without having met face to face. And obviously then you ended up with Thatcher and Douglas Hurd coming up with the prospect of an air blockade of Iraq. Um, but to what extent is that public diplomacy in a way, you know, some of that rhetoric and some of that uh, abuse, that that's a sort mm. of, a, a, you know, for an audience, a different audience, but then behind the scenes, they might have, you know, an engagement going on. I mean, I, I say that partly because of the experience yeah. of the Falklands War, where, you know, the Argentine press and the way in which the junta sort of depict Margaret Thatcher as a sort of a pirate and this sort of thing is quite extraordinary. Yet at the same time, we know that there are elements of negotiations going on really quite late, you know, as the, mm. as, as, as the task force is sailing to the South Atlantic. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously, you know, this is a different setup here. Uh, but, you know, the, I suppose we're, if we're thinking about knowing your enemy, did Edward Heath, did he know in a sense that the way to get results was to flatter Saddam Hussein's mm. ego? Um, mm because that would get the result that they needed. But did he, you know, I suppose one of the things is, and I don't know the answer to this, did Edward Heath actually also really believe that, you know, Saddam Hussein trusts me and he knows that I'm, you know, trust. I mean, was that trust mutual? I don't know. I mean, it, it you know, it's, it's an odd thing. It's difficult to dissect really in that sense, because you sort of look at t Ted Heath's position on, on China, for instance, which was pretty persistently positive. You know, it, it reflected, I suppose, his own ideology, his own, you know, his own beliefs going forward. And again, you have to sort of say, did that mean that his understanding of these autocrats or these autocratic systems was in some ways perverted by these preconceptions and where he thought he wanted to be, you know? So in a curious sort of way, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is, is the policy leading the ability to understand have you got this policy aim and you say, this is what I want to go, therefore we make the target of that policy fit what our policy objectives are? Or are we realistic enough to sort of make a clear assessment of the, the object and then adjust the policy accordingly? I mean, this this is the thing. I mean, it's the things we've discussed before, to be honest, and from a different perspective. But it, it but I think, so, Ali, I think because clearly the difference here or the... It's a difference of approach 
which must be characterised to some extent by, in this case, in Heath's own view of his own agency, of his own ability to... Ego. To make a difference. Well, no, but you know, but that, I don't think it's just yeah. ego, is it? Because I think you could argue that everyone who gets to be prime minister has an That's ego true. in That's in true. some way. But but whereas the Margaret Thatcher position was clearly, I, I see Saddam Hussein from afar. I see what he's done to Kuwait. I I see what he's done to his own people. Uh, therefore, this is a man who has to be contained. Heath clearly thought this is a man that trusts me. Uh, I can do something here. And that is less a question about the character of Saddam than a question about the approach taken by different leaders. But it is also noteworthy and possibly not coincidental that in his case, he's met the man. And in Thatcher's case, uh, and she, she may have, but I don't, I couldn't find any record that she had. So, so is it that the personal contact makes you just instinctively more optimistic that you can, through that relationship, change the actions of the other side? Or is it that essentially some people approach things in an optimistic way and say, I want to achieve this in the world. The way I'm going to do it is by going out there with a positive mindset and speaking to X. And others say, I'm going to look at all the threats around me. I'm going to identify the ones that I'm really concerned about, and I'm going to come up with a policy to contain them or block them. And I don't need to know anything more about who they are. I just need to know what's the best way of containing them. Is that is that a distinction that we can draw? Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose it reflects, you know, how clear-headed, you know, we are in that pursuit of that, you know, whether what we're doing is we're saying, you know, at the end of the day, it's too complicated to really understand who we're, into, it, it, we're working with, in a sense, or we're trying to connect with. And therefore, we'll simply sort of, in, in in essence, quarantine them. I mean, it's basically what you know we'll, we'll contain and quarantine and sort of uh, and set this aside. I'm I'm sorry to say that I sort of feel that's often a bit of a cop out in the uh, in the diplomatic world, isn't mm. it? I mean, in, in mm. the, the great cop out really is in the 1990s the decision of the United States to to pursue dual containment. You know, we don't like Iran or Iraq, mm. therefore we'll put them, even though they don't like each mm. other, by the way. But we'll place mm. them together as part of this sort of dual containment because, frankly. We're containing them because we find it too complicated to work out what on earth either side is really up to, other than that we just don't think they're very nice, you know. So it's 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 and and they're not helpful, and it, it's basically kicking the can down, you know. That that's basically yeah. what it is. But of course, this is a this is a standard process in diplomacy, isn't it? Though I mean, it, it's 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 something that everyone does, and I wouldn't want to. Uh, you know, get the the Iranians off the hook on this because they are the masters at the art of procrastination. So, I mean, they will just delay things, delay things, delay things, uh, not wanting to make a decision. And of course, we can we can turn that into a virtue. I mean, there is the, there is an element of that uh, yeah. being a virtue. But I do think overall, it reflects a degree of unwillingness to grapple with difficult subjects. I was just, I'm going to go back to Saddam Hussein, Ali, because that question about unwillingness to grapple with, or, or point of it, there's there's this story about, um, this is the, the months before the Iraqi invasion mm -hmm. of Kuwait uh, in August 1990. And the US ambassador to Iraq was a lady called April yes. Glasby. And there's a little story about her meetings with, Saddam Hussein and Deputy Prime Minister Tariq Aziz in July 1990, which is essentially the conversation she was sent to have 
to persuade Saddam not to invade Kuwait. And it's all a little bit complicated because there are multiple transcripts of the meeting. But basically, one version says, April Glasby says to Saddam, we can see that you've deployed massive numbers of troops to the south. Normally, that would be none of our business. But when this happens in the context of your threats against Kuwait, then it would be reasonable for us to be concerned. For this reason, I have received an instruction to ask you in the spirit of friendship, not confrontation, regarding your intentions. Why are your troops massed so very close to Kuwait's borders? So that's one version mm-hmm. of the transcript. And then it later on says that this is this um, the critical line. She says to him, we have no opinion on your Arab-Arab conflicts, such as your dispute with Kuwait. Secretary Baker has directed me to emphasize the instruction first given to Iraq in the 1960s that the Kuwait issue is not associated with America. And so that became, and and, you know, it's been debated for ages, but it became seen as being the moment when Saddam interpreted the American position as, we don't really want you to invade Kuwait, but actually if you do, we're not going to do anything about it. And then poor April Glaspie has been then dragged through it all the way since about, you know, why did you say this? It's essentially, you gave tacit approval for the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait because you said we have no opinion on your Arab-Arab conflicts and the Kuwait issue. And she, um, she was quiet about it for many years, but in 2008, she gave an interview to the Lebanese newspaper Dar al-Hayat, and she said, Nobody wants to take the blame. I am quite happy to take the blame. Perhaps I was not able to make Saddam Hussein believe that we would do what we said we would do. But in all honesty, I don't think anybody in the world could have persuaded him. Well, it's a a really interesting example, actually, because when you, you know, you quote that particular line, it immediately jumps out to me that they didn't understand the psychology of the people they were talking to. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I say that because I can draw on several examples in Iran of precisely this phrasing being used. We have no, you know, um, we're quite neutral on it, basically. Do you know what I mean? And that's always interpreted as a green light. So th- there was a sort of a, a famous case when the um, uh, there was a change of dynasty in Iran in 1925 between the Rajars and the Pahlavis. And the Rajars went to the British embassy and they said, what is your view on this change of dynasty? And the British embassy said, we have no view. You know, we take no position mm. on this. And of course, the, they came away saying, oh my God, the British obviously agree with it. Because if they didn't agree with it, they'd have stated it. You know, And one thinks that actually what needed to have been said in 1990 was, we will look with grave seriousness at any military solution to this problem. Yeah. And that, I think, would have sent a signal to him. So, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I remember. Yes, you think you're sending a signal, but you're just not exactly. sending the and, signal And properly. I think that's an excellent example, yeah. really, when I think, I, I mean, I remember listening to that because obviously the, the Americans and, and Naples Glass, you know, they, they sort of make great hay out of the fact that, you know, whether it was poorly worded or not, or, mm. you know, whether they can be held responsible. Clearly, I mean, let's be very clear on this. Saddam Hussein is responsible for the invasion of Kuwait. I mean, that that's neither mm. here nor there. But in terms of a diplomatic failure, I'm increasingly, you know, listening to that again, I'd have to say that was a failure to understand who you were talking to 
and how they would read that mm. comment. If I was Saddam Hussein, I think, mm. and certainly I would have read that comment as, okay, you know, it's okay for me to carry on because, you know, you may be annoyed and you may say something, but you're not going to do anything about it. Do you see? I mean, I think that's a, yeah. that's a really yes. interesting, it's a, it's a really interesting example. And I, I, one would think that people with more experience of, you know, certainly the Middle East uh, would have been aware of that, would have been aware that that sort of framing. Uh, the framing of language in that way uh, was at best ambiguous. And because it was ambiguous, was actually effectively a green line. So let's talk about experience, Ali. And I wanted to, to discuss longevity. Right. Because, and again, it's it's a question really, is whether you get an advantage by being in a post for a long time. Or whether it's a disadvantage. It comes to the heart of the question whether it's an advantage to know your enemy or, or not. But Lavrov, the Russian foreign secretary, foreign minister, has been in his post since 2004. So it's 19 years. During that time, the UK, we're on our 10th foreign secretary. So Lavrov has seen 10 mm. British foreign mm. secretaries come and go. And is that. Who's who gains the advantage from that? Do you want me to list the ten foreign secretaries? Or why don't you try and guess one and make you try? God, and guess I don't them? know. I mean, how long has he been in post? So two thousand four. Oh crikey! I don't think I could remember all the foreign. I'll secretaries. tell you just because I William think it's, I think it's important to remind all our listeners. David Miliband. Our t- yes. Um, so Jack Straw, Margaret oh, Beckett, David Miliband, William Hague, Philip Hammond, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt, Dominic Raab, Liz Truss. And James Cleverly. And it's a bit unfair, of course, because we've had quite a high turnover in the last couple of years, haven't we? No, but we have. But actually, I think this is this is quite indicative. I mean, we have some moments where people do... I mean, Jack Straw did the job for five years, I think. Yeah, that's true. But apart from that, I think it is... It's more common than you'd think. Yeah. Especially in democracies. And then, so you've got a whole load of sort of sub-questions, which is democracies which change not only governments at least every five years often, but also all the little positions within them, that's a very different structure to, uh, you know, Russia. <laughs> where, or where China. You or China, uh, exactly. And and actually, I was going to say something about the, the Xi-Putin relationship as well, because obviously they, they speak regularly. Let's, let's do that in a minute. But who benefits from this? And the other link that you could make, Queen Elizabeth II, because of her longevity, the the length of her reign. She met everybody from the 1940s onwards. And every world leader who came to meet her had in the back of their minds the question, how am I going to measure up to, you know, every French president said, how am I going to measure up to de Gaulle? Am I going to be the one that she remembers? How do I make an impression? Essentially, there's, there's a I mean, that's a that's a fascinating. I mean, it's it, it's we often ignore that, of course, but uh, you're absolutely right that uh, the monarchy, in this sort of sense, does also have a diplomatic function, mm. especially in, the, in terms of the Middle East. Um, yeah. You know, King Charles has has enduring yeah. relationships with the leaders of Middle Eastern countries. Well, as as we mentioned in part one, you know, obviously he's going on a state visit to France mm. and, and Germany, and this is clearly an attempt to sort of rebuild bridges. I mean, on back to Lavrov, I mean, I think Lavrov and certainly, you know, longevity on its own, I don't think is a, 
is necessarily positive if they're not coming under scrutiny. I mean, Lavrov seems to be answerable only to Putin, presumably. So um, there's but longevity a- in terms of his relationship. So, so we saw how he made Liz Truss look ridiculous mm. because she came. He had the memory. He had just just deep yes. institutional knowledge of Russia's relations with. Britain because he had been foreign secretary for 19 years and she trots off and thinks she knows how to do it because this is her approach to the world. But it's very difficult to overcome somebody with with deep memory. But didn't he sort of, and you know, I, I, I entirely get your point, but also did he not over uh, play his hand by being overly contemptuous? You know, I mean... Depends my, who my, your audience is, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously here, even people who were not fans of Liz Truss uh, thought that the way that she had been treated was pretty poor. Now, if you look at Lavrov, and and I I look at his recent uh, experience in India, where was it at the, I can't remember what meeting was it? Was it G20 or something? No, it was that, uh, the Indian conference, wasn't it? Indian security or something. Um, And he says, and he says, without any hint of irony that, you know, when we were attacked by Ukraine, mm. you know, and the audience laughs. Now, he obviously, he's not used to being laughed at. So, so it, you know, I mean, again, I entirely get your point that there's that sort of memory. It's not institutional memory, of course. It's a, it's a personal memory that he builds up and he, he knows these, these people. And Lavrov has a certain reputation of being very hard-nosed. But like with all positions, if you're in them for too long, do you become stale? And the question is, is whether he's become stale. You know, I mean, the other the other person who I like, you know, the longest serving British Foreign Secretary is Edward Gray, mm. I think, in the 20th century, isn't he? Now, you know, the, the one could seriously debate whether someone who was, uh, I mean, he was the longest serving British Secretary in the 20th century, but he never went abroad. I mean, that's the other thing. So yeah. in a sense, he never knew the be and and. It, you know, it's and a matter of debate terrible, how effective he was, actually. He had terrible eyesight as well. That's right. So he um, he had to memorise all his speeches because he couldn't read them. So so there's a whole set of fascinating things. But just I want to just make sure that we are clear that Lavrov was speaking at the Rosina Dialogue in Delhi, which was a politics and economics right. conference, which happened at the beginning of March, just so that we don't look like we don't know what we're talking about there. Ali. But yeah, so, um, right. We're- so, I mean, that longevity, I mean, I think the longevity is important because it gives you a certain amount of authority and a certain gravitas. But I think on its own, it's not uh, necessarily a positive thing, as we see with Lavrov, or as we see maybe with the, uh, and I don't know what the name of the Chinese foreign minister is, actually, I should know, I suppose. But, you know, again, to what extent are they also uh, able to conduct foreign policy with a degree of innovation. I mean, are they simply their master's voice? I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, one gets the impression with Lavrov that he's a bit has a bit more of a freer hand, but that's pos- probably because he's he's so tied in with Putin's and the whole Russian, uh, you know, the, the 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 idea of whether this is all about Putin or whether it's broadly about the Russian elite or, or even the Russian people. Mm. I mean, it's uh, um, Ali. The other, I'm going to interrupt you to say the other sure. example is Angela Merkel. Of course. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah I mean, that's um, right. And she got it flatly wrong. Who got it flatly wrong? Yeah. So she had that consistency. She did know everybody. It's I mean, you just you just keep coming back to the question: whether are some some adversaries are just determined to become enemies? 
despite whatever anybody might do to try and persuade them otherwise. And that's a terrible conclusion to come to. And I sort of feel like so the whole conversation... But Merkel, you see, Merkel nothing. was operating, in my view, and, and it, it's an interesting case. I mean, there's two things here. Longevity gives a certain degree of authority which fewer people are able to challenge or they don't feel able to challenge mm. because having been there for so long, they can talk about it in a, you know, with great, oh, I've known so-and-so, I know how they operate, I've had this background, so on and so forth. And I think new people on the block find it less able you know, to be able to to engage constructively, I suppose, with that. So there's an issue there that, you know, Merkel comes with this, this weight of experience. I mean, experience brings you an element of authority. On the other hand, she's operating within a strategic worldview that basically is a legacy of, you know, Nixon and China, which is this idea that the closer you, you know, the closer you hug the autocrat, the more the autocrat will come to see your your way of things. Can I, this brilliant segue to my, what I think might be my final textual example. Good. Which is Margaret Thatcher and oh. Mikhail Gorbachev. Okay. Uh, so Thatcher invited future leaders of the USSR. In a sense, he wasn't in charge in 1984. And she invited him to come to the UK and I've got the account of this from both sides again. So she says, I now had to consider the next step in my strategy of gaining closer relations with the Soviet Union. Clearly, there must be more personal contact with the Soviet leaders. I was keen to invite others and accordingly invitations went to several senior Soviet figures, including Mr. Gorbachev. It quickly appeared that Mr. Gorbachev was indeed keen to come on what would be his first visit to a European capitalist country and wanted to do so soon. So the Gorbachevs come to London, they drive to Chequers on the morning of uh, Sunday, December the 16th, 1984, arriving in time for lunch. Over drinks in the Great Hall, Mr Gorbachev told me how interested he had been to see the farmland on the way to Chequers, and we compared notes about our country's different agricultural systems. Uh, this had been his responsibility for a number of years. Uh, quite a lot of talk about farming, which is not uninteresting, but I'm going to abridge it. It was not long before the conversation turned from trivialities, for which neither Mr Gorbachev nor I had any taste, to a vigorous two-way debate. In a sense, the argument has continued ever since and is taken up whenever we meet, and as it goes to the heart of what politics is really about, I never tire of it. So then she, she talks at length about the argument, but I think that's interesting. And then at the end, it says... Um, Talks were due to end at 4.30 to allow Mr. Gorbachev to be back for an early evening reception at the Soviet embassy, but he said he wanted to continue. It was 5.50 when he left, having introduced me to another pearl of Russian popular wisdom. Mountain folk cannot live without guests any more than they can live without air, but if the guests stay longer than necessary, they choke. <laughs> bit odd but anyway and and then you know something's lost in translation no uh, she said as he took his leave i hoped that i had been talking to the next soviet leader for as i subsequently told the press this was a man with whom i could do business and and gorbachev's view uh, is you know not dissimilar he describes the thing um the conversation that began was without precedent it was open and friendly nevertheless our ideological differences immediately became apparent you can expect that they would have Sometimes jokingly and sometimes more seriously, unflattering remarks were made about capitalism and communism. Then, it was clear even then that this was a woman of character. 
At some point, our conversation became so tense that some of those present thought it would have no continuation. And then I said to Margaret that I had no instructions from the, from the Politburo to persuade her to join the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. <laughs> she broke into laughter, and I hastened to add that we respected her views, and I was hoping she would treat my views the same way. We soon found that although we represented two opposing alliances and ideologies, we could engage in a real political dialogue on the most critical issues. We argued and we disagreed, but we joined the dialogue. And that, in and of itself, was important, for the confrontation had reached a dangerous point. On many issues, her outlook was different, but the need to look for a way out was clear to both of us. I think, I mean, I, I think that's an excellent example to end on in some ways, actually, isn't yeah. it? Because it that's a success, isn't it? It's a success because what you find there is two people who obviously disagree on certain fundamentals, but can agree on process. Also, though, the, the personal, which is which is so important. And I think, why does this work in some cases and not others? I think it, it has to be down to the fact that in some cases and not others, people are prepared to to do the personal. And so there's this bit I didn't read out, which is a tiny little bit, but it's it's similar to the Stalin-Churchill one, which is, this is Gorbachev. After lunch, we retired to a small room for a talk. First, I took out my papers prepared in Moscow, and Margaret opened her ever-present purse to get quite a pile of pages that contained notes for her conversation. I began putting aside my papers. She did the same putting aside hers. You can imagine, in brackets, you can mm. imagine all the civil servants, time and effort that went into those <laughs> papers. But anyway, they put aside their papers. She even took off her shoes and made herself comfortable in her armchair. It was all happening by an open fire. It was, after all, December, and a harsh one at that. Yet it was warm inside, and as we went along, the atmosphere was improving. And I, I think I can just sort of... I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying, of course, that this meeting was only arranged after Thatcher herself had brought in experts, Russia experts, for a chat to work out who it was they were going to sort of like invite, isn't it? So I think we can end on the note that, you know, Let's experts <laughs> are useful <laughs> because as as with these discussions and as with the discussion we had last time, there is no simple answer. Is there? I mean, there is no simple answer to the, the question of know your enemy and how we do that. Mm -hmm. Yet, the example I think uh, you've ended with uh, brilliantly here, Suzanne, is 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 one that that worked, mm. and it one that worked because both circumstances were apposite, mm. but also people were well prepared. Mm. I mean, I don't know what the situation was on the Soviet side. Presumably, they did a bit of uh, preparation too, but uh, clearly Thatcher had prepared and was willing uh, to take mm. the plunge, so to speak. And it, and it, you know, I think all these things are gambles at the end of the day. But yeah. uh, in this case, it works. So I think that's a, perhaps a, an upbeat way in which to end this rather sort of uh, uh, contentious topic, which, uh, you know, I think we could, uh, we, we could uh, continue discussing. But uh, So sometimes, so I think we're going to end by saying sometimes you should talk to your enemy, but only when the time is right. Yes, and that's, in, a, that's and, a good and way. I think that's a good way to end it. And be prepared. <laughs> be prepared. So I think on, on that note, uh, I think we can bring that to a close. Lovely. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye.